right, how are we doing today? Good? What's wrong with you people? That wasn't everybody. That was some of you are like, no. Let me just set the scene for you, okay? Um, you just got done worshiping the creator of the universe and singing songs to him in his presence, okay? And he has invited you into his presence. You woke up this morning and you don't live in West Virginia. How are you doing today? Good? All right. All right, like Pastor said, my name is Caleb, and I'm so glad to be here with you. Um, I, I'm originally from, you know, I live out in Los Angeles because my wife and I enjoyed not having money. So it's awesome <laughs> to be able to hang out here with you guys. And uh, I love Daryl, I love Dave, I love your, your whole staff team, and you just have some amazing people here. So let me just tell you, if you're visiting today, if somebody bribed you and said, come to church and then I'll take you to lunch, make sure they pay up, or Daryl or Dave will make sure they pay up. But this is the church that I would attend if I lived in this area. This is a place where it's okay not to be okay, but we all gather together and follow Jesus no matter where we are on that journey. So I just wanna let you know, you're in a good place right here at this church. Um, let me tell you a little bit more about me, okay? I, I just got to make a confession here. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of flying. And, and let me clarify that. When I say I'm not a big fan of flying, it's not because I'm afraid of dying. I figure if you go out on a plane, it's a good way to go, okay? You're probably going to pass out before you hit the ground. And not only that, if not, it'll be exciting, at least, your last moments, you know? I mean, it'll be fun. But here's why I don't like... Um, to fly, other people. Um, people are gross. Human beings are just, we live in a generation right now where people will walk barefoot in a commercial airliner bathroom. Um, and they're obviously amputees by now, right? If, if that's them. Uh, let me, and some of you are just looking at me like you're being judgmental. Oh yes, I am, very much so. Let me give you an example why, okay? I remember this uh, about three or four years ago, I was flying and I was sitting in the aisle seat, which is where you wanna sit, by the way. You get the most leg room, you can stand up when you land, and statistically, you're going to live if the plane crashes, opposed to the people who like the window seat, just because they want a wall there. Anyway, but if that's you, change your mind. Anyway, so we get up to cruising altitude, and we're flying, and there's this lady next to me, I don't know her, okay, but homegirl takes off her shoes and socks and starts clipping her toenails right next to me. Now, I don't usually say anything, although this time I did. I just looked at her and said one word. I looked at her and said, seriously? And she said, oh, is this bothering you? I said, yeah, your toenail is on my shoe. I said, it wasn't there five minutes ago. And she said, well, maybe I could do this when I get home tonight. And I said, I love that plan. Let's go with that plan. That's where I cut my toenails, at home, by myself. I said, I've been married to my wife for years, and she's never seen me cut my toenails ever. She's like, well, I'm, I've never tried that. I'll try that. People, listen, if you don't think that humanity needs Jesus, get on an airplane, okay? Go to Los Angeles International Airport, AKA Purgatory, if there ever was one. Go to the DMV. Okay, that's the, that, this is what we're working with here, people. People need Jesus, big time. And, and that's 
why this church exists for you, not for you toenail clippers in public, but for the rest of you. I'm just kidding. No, but seriously, I feel like we live in a society right now where everything's backwards. Everything's turned around. I feel like we live in a society where we celebrate the things that we should be cautious about and the things we should be, you know, the things that we say, hey, let's be cautious about. Then you are somebody that automatically is seen as a radical. I feel like we live in a society that overemphasizes emotions and reactions and underemphasizes logic and truth. You see, here's the deal. Um, there was this church leader all the way back in the 300s or before. His name was Augustine. And he basically said, paraphrase, he said that when you follow Jesus, your mind and your will must never be opposed to each other. They must go hand in hand. And yet, what do we see society doing? Society is always trying to pit us against each other as human beings, but also is also trying to pit those of us who have faith against our faith all the time. You know what I really think it goes back to? I think everything goes back to identity. I really, really do. I think it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Some of you remember Genesis chapter 3. If you haven't read the Bible, let me just tell you the story real quick. God creates the world, and he creates Adam and Eve, according to Genesis 1 through 3. And then he tells them, hey, you can eat of anything in this perfect garden you want, except for that tree right there, the knowledge of the good and evil. Now, if you have kids, you know exactly what's going to happen. Even if you don't know the end of the story, you know what's going to happen. Because if you have kids, you're like, don't eat from that jar right there. What are they going to do? They're going to go and do that. 100%. Some of you are like, I never did. No, you did. You just did other things. Your jar was other things. <laughs> Tell the truth. Shame the devil. And, and, so, and so, like, they, you know, Satan comes in Genesis 3 and tempts them. And when Satan tempts them, it's really interesting. First, he gets them to doubt God. He says, hey, did God really say that? Did he say that? And then what's interesting is he goes after their identity. And he says, hey, if you eat from this tree, you will be just like God. Knowing the difference between good and evil. And all of a sudden, it's not enough for you to just be you. As God created you now, You've got to be other things. Now you've got to be greater. Now you've got to prove yourself. Now you've got to show everybody who you are. Now you've got to appear like this. Now you've got to appear like that. And I think that the biggest issue of humanity throughout the ages is the issue of identity. Some of us think we're better than others. Some of, the, some of us think we're, think we're worse than others. Some of us primarily identify by our family or by another person and a relationship. Some of us, we can't let go of our past and we allow our past and what other people say about us to define who we are today when that's a lie. There are others of us out there, we primarily identify ourselves by what we do, by our work. Some of us out here, we identify ourselves primarily by our sports team, which is wrong, unless you're a Chiefs fan like me. That's the greatest team in the NFL. Right? No? Yeah. Goodbye. <laughs> Look, I get it. I get it. Some of you are jealous of our quarterback. I get it. I get it. I, I, some of you may have been rooting for Thanos, who played for the Patriots for many years. Goes by Brady as well. Last name. <laughs> now, look, I get it. Our quarterback is awesome, and you're jealous. Okay? I don't mind rubbing this in your face, because do you know how hard it's been to be a Chiefs fan my whole life? 
It's been difficult. And those of you who are not rooting for Mahomes and the Chiefs, you should. You know why? He became a Christian 18 months ago. Gave his life to Christ. Yeah. He did. And you should cheer with him because you're going to be with him in heaven for eternity. Or maybe you won't be. I don't know. But I'm just saying you should think about it. Anyway, back on to the sermon. You see, we live in a society right now where I think that we don't understand what is true and what is not true anymore because we are confused about our identity. We are confused about where we have come from. We forget Genesis 1, 26 to 28, where God says that we are created in his image and in his likeness. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter your perspective. You are created in the image and likeness of God. Everybody that you see, look around real quick. Look at people around you in a non-creepy way. Okay? If you're going to look at them creepily, just look straight ahead. Now, all of a sudden, all the people looking straight ahead, they're like, oh. Everybody you see is someone that God created and Jesus died for. But what do we do when we forget our identity? What do we do when we forget the truth? What do we do when we get caught up in the false dichotomies of society and culture, in the false dichotomies of our friends, when it seems like everything else is trying to get us away from Jesus? If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to uh, John chapter 4. We're going to have the words on the screen in just a moment. So if you don't have your Bibles, I'm going to read it for you. Now, let me, let me just set the scene for you, okay? Jesus has started his ministry by the time we get to John chapter 4. And when we're in John chapter 4, Jesus is going through an area called Samaria, okay? Some of you remember King David. And even if you haven't read the Bible, King David, remember he... Uh, you may have heard this story. He had a slingshot and he threw a rock and killed a giant, you know, really tall guy named Goliath. And then he had a son. He was king for a while. Then he had a son named Solomon who was very wise. And then Solomon had a son who was a moron and he became king. And he was, this might be tough for some of you to believe, but um, he was a, a young uh, person who was entitled and he actually ended up splitting the kingdom of Israel in two. So you had Judah which was more faithful, not all the way, but more faithful than the other side. And eventually they come to be known as, as Israel of what we see today. But then in the Northern Kingdom, they were at first called Israel, okay? By the time you get to Jesus's day, they're also called Samaria. And they have some weird beliefs because you had a bunch of Jewish people who, um, who married other uh, people from other religions and they developed some strange beliefs, okay? And Jewish people did not like Samaritans. You did not go through Samaria. You did everything you could to walk around Samaria. And yet, I don't know if, if you're used to reading about Jesus, but Jesus, he's like a bull. He runs for red flags. He sees a red flag, he runs at it. He is not afraid of being taboo because every single time something like that happens, he actually uses it to teach other people about him and about how they should treat people. And so he takes his disciples and he goes right through Samaria. They go through a town called Sychar. It's about the middle of the day around noon. And he goes to a well and he sits there. And something interesting happens while he's sitting there. Look at John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? 
For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Like, Jewish people would call Samaritans half-breeds. They wouldn't even look at them as full human beings. That's the way they treated them. They didn't even want them to touch them, nothing whatsoever. And yet, here's Jesus, and he's talking to a Samaritan woman. And not only is he a man talking to a Samaritan woman, because both in Samaria and in Israel back in the day, men did not really talk to women in public, but Jesus is a rabbi who's talking to a Samaritan woman, and that was a big no-no. You never did that. And he asked her for a drink. Now, some people have thrown shade at Jesus and they've said, well, why is he like commanding this woman? No, this is actually a good thing when he asks her for a drink because he is willing to drink from the same cup as she is. He's honoring her dignity in this moment. You see, men would not usually drink from the same cup as women, but especially Jewish people, not Samaritans, they would not drink from the same cup. But here's Jesus, and he is a Jewish rabbi saying, I'll drink from the same cup as a Samaritan woman. In other words, he's treating her like a human being in this moment. He's not trying to get her to serve him. He's treating her like a human being. Now, she's probably like, oh, this guy's kind of weird. Look at verse 10. Or, sorry, look at, um, look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? I mean, can't you hear the sarcasm there? I can hear the sarcasm. I, I might be sarcastic too if I was her. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? And Jacob, man, he's an Old Testament leader. He was a big name. If you were Jewish and you mentioned the name Jacob, it's like you're going to listen. And so the fact that Jacob built this well, this well that held this water, that meant something to both the Samaritans and the Jewish people. And he, she's like, who do you think you are? You think you're greater? You think you're something? Here's what Jesus answers. Verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And again, look at verse 15. You can hear the sarcasm. Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and I won't have to keep coming down here to draw water. Now, I love this next verse. Look at verse 16. He told her, go call your husband and come back. You see, if this were a movie, this is where there would be absolute silence. You would hear the crickets chirping. You could hear a needle drop on the sand, on the dirt, in the middle of the day. Because in this moment, she's busted. Some of you who are adults, do you remember when you were kids? I don't know if you can remember that far back, but do you remember... I know it's the end of the week or beginning of the week. Some people say it's the beginning of the week. Well, whatever. It's somewhere. It's beginning end of the week, Sunday. We're going to argue about this, aren't we? Anyway, there, remember when you were a kid and you thought you got away with something? You thought you had it all perfect. You got away with it. And then your parents catch you, your teacher catches you, and it's that feeling when your heart drops right in your stomach and begins to digest your heart. You have to go to the bathroom. That feeling right there. That's what's happening in this moment. She gets busted. She gets caught. Here's what she says, verse 17. 
I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Now, I just, I just want to say something real quick. This is usually the point of the sermon, where other preachers, when they're preaching this, they will say, Jesus confronted her with the truth. She needed to know the truth. She needed to know what she was doing was wrong. And it's like, okay, I, I do think that. I do think that Jesus in this moment was showing her the truth. But can I suggest that I think that Jesus was doing something else? I think Jesus was being empathetic in this moment. Let me explain why. You see, back in the first century in Jesus' day, both in Samaritan culture and in Jewish culture down in Israel, you, you really, here's the rule. Okay, you ready for this? I'm just going to prepare you. Uh, ladies, wives, you're going to hate this. Okay? Just prepare yourself. Okay? Um, only men were allowed to divorce wives. Wives could not divorce men. That was the rule. Okay? And, and so basically, there were, there were different rabbinic, modern rabbinical schools of thought back in those days. You had one rabbi who said that men should never divorce their wives. You had another rabbi that said, well, they should sometimes divorce you know, their wives, maybe two or three reasons why. But then the most popular rabbi, and I know this is hard to believe, but the most popular one basically said, you can divorce your wife for anything. Wake up, she doesn't look pretty, divorced. Okay? Burns the food, divorced. Because that's how they did it back then. So I'm like, you expect your wife to cook for you, Caleb? Leave me alone, listen to the sermon, okay? If, watching TV, turn off the Chiefs game, divorced. In that moment. And so, basically, let me illustrate this another way. They're treating women like cattle. That's one of the reasons why, G, why the Pharisees asked Jesus, hey, if a woman is married to this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, you know, then when she gets to heaven, whose wife is she going to be? Why did they give him that illustration? Because that was literally happening. Men were just doing whatever they wanted. And in a dominated first century Jewish Male-dominated society under the Pharisees, what options were there for women when they would get tossed out on the street? Not many and not ones that they would like. And so in this moment, here's what I think Jesus, I think he was acknowledging her reality. I think he was acknowledging her pain. I think he was saying, you've had five husbands. You've been married five times. You've been divorced five times. You have been thrown out on the street five times. You have been rejected five times. What you have said is quite true. Yes, I think he was telling her the truth. I think he also was acknowledging the reality of her situation. Let me just be honest with you for a second. If I was this woman... I would not want to get married again after being rejected five times, would you? I am not justifying the decision that she has made to live with somebody that's not her husband. That is not what I'm doing. But I'm saying, can you at least empathize with her a little bit? Would you want to take the risk of being rejected a sixth time? Neither would I. And those of you who say yes, you're lying. Tell the truth, shame the devil. You're like, you're not lying. Yes, you are. 
Look at verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. It's one of the funniest lines in this whole story. He doesn't know her. He's a, a rabbi from Israel walking through Samaria, through this town, not supposed to be. Everybody else in the town knows her. That's why she's going to the, get water at the hottest time during the day. She's going to get water when nobody else is because everybody else went either in the morning or in the evening to get water when it was not as hot. She goes during the hottest part of the day because she doesn't want the stairs. She doesn't want the gossip. Now listen, I know this doesn't happen in Evansville, but in other towns, there's gossip. <laughs> I know it doesn't happen here, right? But in other towns, you know, weird towns, like Bloomington, <laughs> there's gossip that happens left and right, right? Because word gets around. Even where I live in LA, there's gossip all over the place. And she didn't want to hear the gossip. She didn't want to look at the stairs. She didn't want to hear the little chuckles as she was going. Again, do you blame her? I don't. I would go at the hottest time of the day. Not if it was Phoenix, I would just die. But other than that, she says, sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Verse 20, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. <coughs> Woman, Jesus said, verse 21. And let me just stop right there. There are some um, quote-unquote scholars who will say, Jesus was being rude when he called her woman, and he doesn't dance. Okay, let's look at this in an ancient Near Eastern context. This was a polite way of saying ma'am. It was nice. It's not like today, like saying, woman, here now. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's being polite. He's saying, woman... Jesus replied, believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. But we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Dude, I love that. Like Jesus pretty much tells her, your theology is wrong. We live in a day and age where we struggle with identity and truth. And so we have a lot of people who say, well, you know, you can just believe whatever you want. Jesus is saying, no, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. That's not true. Now, are there gray areas in Christianity? Yeah, gray areas in the fact that God understands them, but we don't because we're sinful, fallen, broken human beings living in the arena of time. But yeah, there are confusing things about, Christ about Christianity. There are tensions. Like, for instance, have you ever tried to explain the Trinity to someone? That's fun. <laughs> we believe in one God and three persons. So you believe in three gods? No. We believe in one God revealed in three persons. So there are three persons, yes. But one God, yes. How does that go together? It's Christian math. God's a teacher, not me. Like, we believe that this book is inspired, but God used sinful people to write it. How's that work? I don't know. I don't know. We believe that God is sovereign, but then, you know, he holds us responsible for our decisions and gives us free will. There are some people like, well, what do you do when you come to preach a verse on predestination or free will? I'm like, well, if it's predestination, I'll preach that. If it's free will, I'll preach that. Like, isn't that talking out of both sides of your mouth? I'm like, yep. Welcome to Christianity. <laughs> like, we believe that death and evil were defeated at the cross, but death and evil are not yet destroyed. How does that work? I don't know. You know one of the reasons why I believe in Christianity? One of the many reasons? 
I believe in my faith because not everything is perfectly explained. If this was made up, it would be neat and tidy and everything fits just so in a box. And yet, that's not my faith. There are some things that are absolute. And this is one of these things where Jesus is saying, you're worshiping in the wrong way. You're not worshiping the true God. You're not in the place where you are. You are not in communion with God like you think you are. And so, as opposed to what culture has said, some people say modern day culture, but I'll say every single culture throughout the history of the world has struggled with truth. And all of them, whether they like it or not, has had this idea that truth is whatever I define it as. Because when that happens, you can control people. Look what, look what Jesus goes on. He says, yet, verse 23, a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father and the Spirit in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And I love what Jesus says here. He says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And in the original language, when you, when you look at John, it's like somebody is writing in Greek, but thinking in Hebrew. And literally it says, I, the one speaking to you, I am. And that is a throwback all the way back to the book of Exodus. All the way back to the book of Exodus, Exodus 3 and following, when God appears to Moses through the burning bush, and Moses says, hey, you're sending me back to Egypt. Who should I tell them sent me? And God says, tell them I am sent you. I am that I am. And this is one of many times where Jesus says, I am. And that's how she knows. And I love this story because he is telling, he's giving her an opportunity. He is treating her like a fellow human being. He is honoring her dignity. He is telling her the truth, but he's acknowledging her perspective and her reality and her pain. And in this moment, I think he's telling her, you do not have to be defined by the barriers that your town keeps you in. Because back in the first century, you lived, you were born, you lived, and you died usually in the same town. Jesus was unique going from town to town to town to town. People didn't do that. And in this moment, I honestly believe Jesus is saying, there can be something greater for you. See, what do we do when we get confused with our identity, with truth, with what culture tells us, no matter what culture you're living in? I want you to remember this principle. Whose you are defines who you are. Whose you are defines who you are. You hear me on that? Whose you are defines who you are. Because all of you belong to someone. Either you belong to your work primarily. Some of you belong to your family. You try to identify through them. You get your validation through them. You try to live your life through your kids. And you don't realize that puts too much pressure on your spouse and your kids, and one day when your kids grow up, they're gonna resent you for that. There are some of us in this room, we primarily identify through like politics. Stop it. <laughs> there are some of you in here, you need to watch less CNN, and there are some of you in here, you need to watch a whole lot less Fox News. Listen, listen, listen to me right now, okay? Okay, neither party has the mind of Christ, okay? Neither party, and, and hear me out, 
I used to watch the news, both channels, and I would get frustrated and upset. I stopped. I'm not frustrated anymore. But now I'm watching Unsolved Mysteries and I'm scared all the time. So it's like... (laughs) Got to stop with the true crime podcast and so on. I'm like, oh my gosh. Do you remember how creepy that show was? Do you ever watch that show? I remember as a kid I'd watch it. Robert Stack with his voice and then like right after the show, my dad would be like, oh, it's time to go to bed. I'm like, well, they're still out there. How are we going to go to bed? Like, it's not called solved mysteries. It's unsolved mysteries. You see, whose you are defines who you are. Let me tell you where this comes alive for me, okay? When I was two years old, my parents were both professors in the University of Missouri-Columbia, and they divorced, and my mom and dad went into same-sex relationships. My dad had several different friends um, throughout my childhood, and my mom was in a 22-year monogamous relationship with a psychologist named Vera, and they were together. Um, uh, they, uh, Vera died of cancer uh, 22 years after they got together, but they moved to Kansas City. They joined the local board of GLAD. They, when I was growing up, they took me with them to bars and clubs and campouts and pride parades. Um, and I was raised by three LGBTQ parents my whole childhood. And I remember one time when I was younger, I was marching in this pride parade. And at the end of the parade, there were all these, quote unquote, Christians holding up signs saying, God hates you. And they were throwing water and urine on my mom's parade saying, this is what Jesus thinks of you. And I remember thinking to myself, I never want to be a Christian because if Christians are this bad, I can't imagine how awful Jesus Christ is. You see, I think we really underestimate how much our words and the way we treat people will either encourage them to follow Jesus or discourage them from following Jesus. And so by the time I got to, you know, be 16 years old, I was living it up. I was part, I mean, sneaking out, I was doing every, I mean, my hair is down to here since then the Lord removeth and addeth like, (laughs) this is not a roast. (laughs) No, seriously, I, real quick, I have two kids and um, my kids like, I love them to death. My, my daughter, she's 14. Um, my son is 16. He's going to be a junior. He's six foot two. So I asked my wife, I'm like, do we need to do a DNA swap? Like, <laughs> we need to know who's going to pay for college. So I, I need to understand this in, the, in this moment. No. My wife, by the way, she is beautiful. Like, if you met her, she would love her. I, it was hard. I found somebody prettier than me. Um, she is a muy caliente Latina. And she, uh, she goes to, like, um, the gym every day, you know. I had to forgot the name of that place, but the gym every day. Like, she's got abs, you know. She's got, like, a six-pack, and I think you can tell I'm in Netflix shape. Um, that's me. Um, and I told her, you better hope nothing ever happens to me, that this is the best you're going to do right here, okay? This is your eye candy every morning you wake up to. You're a lucky lady. And she's like, Yay. So I got invited when I was 16 to go to this Bible study, and I thought, this is going to be great. I'm going to go there and be a pretend Christian and disprove the Bible. And as you can tell, that worked out real well. It was a great plan. <laughs> and so then I came to, uh, you know, to, I started, kept on going, and I felt like Jesus was disproving me. And I woke up one morning, and I, I just, I called my friend Greg, and I said, Greg, I don't know what to do. I think I've turned Christian. Christian. 
who's my high school friend. I'd been going to his dad's church to their youth group, and he said, well, let's, let's eat Chinese food, and I'll baptize you. So we did that. <laughs> and I come to two conclusions I still hold today. First conclusion is, I think God created sex, and, and you may not, and that's up to you, but I think God created sex to be expressed in a marriage between a male and a female. But I also believe that theological beliefs are never reasons to devalue another human being. That, that what I believe about marriage or relationships, that has never, ever impacted the way I treat people, the way I see people, you know, what I believe about people or what they should and shouldn't have, because those are my beliefs about, you know, marriage and relationships. And, and by the way, if what you believe about that, like, impacts how you treat other people, you're doing it wrong. Like, it, seriously, you, you, can, you might have correct theology, you're a heretic by how you carry it out. Because here's the thing. Jesus said in Matthew, and, and maybe one day more of you will clap for that, but Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself. And then Paul says in Romans 13, 8 through 10, and Galatians 5, 14, that loving your neighbor fulfills the law. And I've had people ask, well, why didn't he say loving God and loving your neighbor fulfills the law? And I'm like, how do you think you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind? You love God with everything you are by loving your neighbor as yourself. Because that's what God is most passionate about, people. And so then I had to, at the age of 16, come out as a Christian to my three activist parents and they kicked me out of the house for a while. And so when I talk to a lot of LGBTQ teens and students who have been uh, kicked out or mistreated by ultra cultural fundamentalist parents, they're like, you don't know what it's like to feel rejected. I'm like, actually I do. Actually I do. But that never gives you the right to return that to somebody else. Because then in a sick way, you become like the very people that hurt you. So how do we live out this truth of who you are defines who you are? Got to go through this real quick. Number one, value God's words above trends and traditions. You have to value God's words above trends and traditions. Now, you might say trends and traditions, are, they're important. Yeah, they are. I'm not saying they're not. I'm not saying they're not your basis. If you build what you believe in your ethics and your morality off of trends, you're always going to be changing and you're going to be worn out. If you build it off of traditions, you're never going to have any empathy or understanding for other people because those are human made. Okay? Value God's words over everything else, especially loving your neighbor as yourself. If you have an issue with that or if you don't just like saying that alone and letting it stand there, heart check. Number two, never allow the fear of some people to determine the value of many. Never allow the fear from some to determine the value of many. My parents, when they kicked me out for a while, they eventually let me back in. But when they kicked me out for a while, they didn't realize that they were acting just like the Christians. They were telling everybody not to act. Do you know why? Because fear is a common human trait. Some of you probably believe this lie. I've heard this lie before. It's wrong to be afraid. Bull butter. God gave you the capacity to feel fear for a reason. Let's say that we're in a multiverse somewhere 
And there's another Caleb that hikes. Again, that doesn't happen. If you see me running, you better run. There's something really bad coming. And by the way, it's hilarious to see me run too. Things are jiggling all around. And so, like, but if I were to hike in SoCal, we have mountain lions. My neighbor about four houses down last year had a mountain lion in his backyard. Like 2 a.m. Thought somebody was breaking in, turn on the light. He about had an aneurysm. Okay. If I saw a mountain lion, I wouldn't go, come on. I wouldn't do that. You know why? Because you'd be dead. You'd go to heaven, but God would give you a big face ball. Said you had one job. Stay away. That was your only job. Stay away. You see, we can, we, we're supposed to feel fear. It warns us. But when fear starts to determine how we treat people and determines the direction of our life, it becomes toxic and it's used to hurt people. Okay? That's why some of us need to stop watching so much news and we need to open up our book, the Bible, and read it. Okay? And we need to watch the chiefs. Okay? Third thing. Living out whose you are defines who you are. Accept everyone, but don't agree with just anyone. You are commanded by God to accept people. And when I say accept people, I mean love them where they're at no matter what. Like I, I tell people, um, there, there are some, if you want to become a Christian, let me tell you some reasons why you shouldn't become a Christian. I don't know if we're allowed to say that, but I will. Okay? When you become a Christian, you give up your right to be vindictive and get revenge. You give up your right to treat people poorly. You give up your right to hold grudges. You give up your right to be unforgiving. You give up your right to be indifferent. You give up your right to be unloving. You don't get those rights. When you become a Christian, you are commanded to love and to pray for your enemies and to love those who persecute you. That's what you're commanded to do. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. That does not mean you have to agree with every belief somebody holds, with every opinion somebody has. That does not mean you have to agree with every life decision somebody makes or even people's preferences. Do you, do you know how much I can't stand the Star Wars sequel trilogy, but I still accept you, mostly. I, I need to revise that statement. Anyway. Whose you are defines who you are. And you are never more like God and more like Jesus than when you love people that you don't like and the people that don't like you. That takes real strength. It takes no effort to dislike and to treat people poorly if they don't like you or you don't like them. Let me finish a story about my parents. I went to Bible college, moved out to California back when everybody was. I had a brief three and a half year stint of living in Dallas, Texas, AKA purgatory. Um, oh, it's hostile there. Jerry Jones is there. And let me tell you something. If your goal is to gain weight, move to Dallas. They have great food, by the way. Like if that is your goal in life. I mean, that's, I used to look like Zac Efron. Then I moved there. This is what food did to me, people. I, I went to Dallas. I was preaching at a church for three and a half years. My mom's partner had died. And separately of one another, my mom and dad moved down to Dallas, Texas to attend the church I was preaching at. And they're like, can we attend your church? And I said, yeah, you know what I believe about? Right? They're like, yeah. And I'm like, all right, come on. And you know what? The people in this church 
treated them well. Now there are some weirdos. Every church has those. But the people, like most of the people treat them well. It didn't matter what they believed. It didn't matter if they disagreed. Like people think society get better if we disagree less. No, society gets better when we learn how to disagree better. And they treated them well. They treated them so well that at the ages of 69, 70, my mom and dad accepted Christ for the very first time. And in the last nine months, I lost both my mom and dad. Most recently, my mom. And I remember when she died, I was on my way to Saturday night church at the church I'm at. And um, I remember walking in the auditorium and we're singing songs and praising God. I remember thinking, that is exactly what my parents are doing. My parents started to believe in Jesus and believed in Jesus. Why? Because there were a group of people that loved them for who they were and saw that there was a creator that had created them and wanted to define them. And now they are singing songs around the throne of the lamb because there are a bunch of people that put all their politics and everything outside just loved. I'm like, that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. Whose you are defines who you are. Everyone is someone God created and Jesus died for. Let me pray for you. Lord, this is hard to live out because if we're going to be honest, God, we don't always want to believe that whose we are defines who we are. We want to do things our way. We want to be great. We want to be the ones that everybody looks to. Father, may we fade away in the crowd so that we can point everyone to you. It is not about us. May you be the one that primarily defines us so that we can point people to you, Father. May we be slow to judge. May we be quick to forgive. Father God, even if we don't trust somebody, it doesn't mean we can't pray for them. And Lord, for those of us in here, we've been hurt by the Christians or maybe we're not, we don't identify as a Christian. That's not our primary identity. Father, help us to be able to see that this is a place where it's okay to take your next step with Jesus. It's okay to ask the question, what, is, what does he want me to do? It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. God bless.